here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Men Without Hats, because I recently spoke to Ivan Doroshek to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all that other groovy stuff. And you're going to find out a lot about the band and various other bits and pieces. And also, they have got quite a lot of live dates coming up in the summertime of 2024. But I'll give you the link to their website in the notes below so you can see where they're playing in North America. Anyway, so after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Ivan, over to you. My first single was uh, Do What Diddy by Manfred Mann. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good one. That's that's not a bad one for dear old Manfred Mann. And did you, at that stage in life, was this kind of during the, I suppose, the sort of mid-60s period, late 60s? Yeah, well, I was, I, I, I was uh, early 60s, actually. I'm, uh, I was born in uh, 57, so I'm just a bit older than you. Um, I was, I grew up... Uh, basically listening to my babysitter's uh, Beatles records. Right. There you go. It's always good to have a an older brother, sister or babysitter, because I had a brother who was seven years older than me, and he was very into prog rock of all that world. This is the 70s of Sweet Slade, T-Rex. No, not Sweet Slade. Yes, Genesis, Barkley James Harvest, people like that. So, um, And even the solo work of Rick Wakeman that I became quite fond of. So um, that was kind of interesting. But when you got to the age of 13, this is when the 70s sort of started, was it? Did you have that kind of... A kind of awareness at that stage of people like the the sort of that 60s period of you know Hendrix and Janis Joplin the Doors people like Jefferson Airplane was that at all in your consciousness at that stage no, I, I was that was just 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 before me I was sort of like like I grew up uh you know like seeing the Woodstock movie but I was more more into like my first concert my first big rock show was Led Zeppelin touring Led Zeppelin three, and um, got into David Bowie, got into Roxy music, you know the T Rex, the whole thing. Yes. But um, it was uh, I got into prog rock. I'm a keyboard player, so I got into prog rock pretty fast. And I was into Genesis. I saw the Lamb Lies Down, not the Lamb Lies, the uh, Selling England, Selling England by the Pound tour, and uh, Pink Floyd saw the dark side of the moon tour and and uh that type of stuff it was it was pretty much classic rock excellent did you sort of veer into that world of patrick is it patrick moraz and van gellis and people like emerson lake and palmer did they sort of come into your consciousness at all yeah yeah a bit a bit but later on i got into i i, I started getting more like into the sort of esoteric prog like van der graaf generator and uh that type of stuff and Tangerine Dream and the Germans craftwork and all that 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 stuff. But, That's uh, fantastic. So when you got to sixteen, this was probably the mid seventies at that stage. Did you leave school at that point, or did you sort of stay on for college or university? Went to university. I started the band when I was in university. I was uh, I was uh, going to university, working part time in a hospital, and uh, and I started the band. And uh, so when time got tight i sort of the the university 
took the wayside first and then the part-time job and then I stay, stayed with the band. Yes. Did you get into bands? Did you did the punk period? I know it's kind of an interesting mix between prog rock and punk rock, isn't it, really? At that time, the two didn't sort of marry, marry very well. Did you sort of become quite fascinated with the sort of the sound of people like the Pistols and Buzzcocks and uh, such such outfits as, as uh, them? I was when when punk first started. I was I was in France. I was in the south of France studying law, actually, at the University of Nice. And uh, I remember seeing, you know, going through the Galerie Lafayette and uh, going through the record sections and seeing the first Sex, Sex Pistols single and kind of saying, "Oh, that's that's not right. That's not a that's not that's not a proper name for a band." <laughs> I was still into Genesis, still into prog rock at that time, and. Uh, and but I came back to North America after you know I guess it was seventy seven when came back to 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 Canada and um, sort of got into the got into the punk scene just got in but more more through the new wave side of it I got in through uh, through Blondie and through Devo and uh, the B fifty twos that kind of more more poppy commercial type of things and. Uh, the Pistols came a bit later, not too much later, but the it, the punk scene came a bit later because, I mean, here anyway, the the there was one bin in record stores and it was punk new wave, so everything was kind of lumped in together. Anything that wasn't classic rock was lumped into one bin at the back of the store, and that's how the you know when you played bands played live too, you'd see punk bands playing with new wave bands like keep you know sort of poppier bands. They would just share the same stage because nobody else wanted to wanted to put them on so uh, it was all it all kind of blended together so and yes. we shared a kind of we shared a kind of diy kind of philosophy and sort of anti-establishment anti-classic rock philosophy too so it was all kind of mixed together so that's how i got into the punker side of things yes god you had to sort of hide those records did you um what was your first punk concert you or gig you went to at that stage Oh geez, like back then, I don't know nine 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 if you can call them punk. I mean, oh yes, yes, they they some <laughs> nice little. There were bands like the Lurkers and Chelsea and nine 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 and Vibrators. Uh, oh, the Vibrators, we love them. The Adverts, God, yes, all that kind of world. But it was kind of post punk with people like Elvis Pres uh, Costello and. Joe Jackson, and then obviously people like Joy Division came along as well. So when you first formed the band, what was the kind of general sound? Because obviously going from Led Zeppelin to Yes, to Genesis, to those kind of bands, to sort of forming a band, obviously at that stage. Yeah, well, when we first when we first started, we were, we were, it was all guitars. It was just, you know, guitars and drums. There were no keyboards. And uh we were doing like contortions covers and uh, that type of sort of no wave kind of music just with the Fred Frith alligator clips on the guitar strings and playing with pieces of metal and stuff like that and more experimental stuff. And uh, yes. at one point I decided I wanted to, I wanted to, I guess, reach more people, I guess, and decided to go a more popular route. So I, I put my, uh, my keyboard uh, expertise into the mix, and uh, we started doing what turned into Men Without Hats today. Yes, and did when did you find your voice and and sort of the confidence to become the front man and the singer? Oh, 
I've always been singing. My mother was a was a voice teacher at McGill University in Montreal, so we always had sort of classical music. I sang in the in the choir and junior choir at church and stuff like that. And right, you had the there was always music in our home too. There was always my dad was an amateur musician, and we all had we, we were there was we were sur- surrounded by music, so it it just came naturally. Yes. And then when was the first, because you did your first, it was an EP, wasn't it? Folk of the 80s. Was this yeah. your first time in a studio? And you recorded four tracks, didn't you, at this stage? Because yeah, it was kind of yeah. interesting. Were you becoming aware of that kind of electronic scene that was starting to develop in, in especially suppose the UK? And I know New York's punk, post-punk or no-wave scene was much more kind of esoteric, like you mentioned, the contortions, but you had all those other bands who brought in much more eclectic rhythms and guitars and vocals, which was very different to the the punk scene in the UK, which was, um, there was a label called Z Records, wasn't there, which was always yeah. had some very interesting and eclectic things. Did you sort of, going into the studio for the first time, did you have all your material well rehearsed and well planned? Oh, it was... Uh... It was, it was, you know, sort of semi-rehearsed, semi-planned. One of the interesting stories is one of the singles, one of the songs on that, on the on the first EP that became kind of the 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 sort of most popular song, Antarctica, uh, started off as a slow reggae beat. And when we we were rehearsing the last the night before going into studio, we were going through the songs with playing them for our manager just to show him what, which songs we were going to be doing. And and uh, we started Antarctica at on the wrong setting we started it at like double the speed setting and so we played it for a few you know for a few bars and laughingly turned it off and said okay let's put it at the right speed and the manager said no 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 that's the right speed you know just do it fast and so we went in and you know we went in and, and it became a you know, sort of that it was the hit off that off that ep so uh it was a happy accident yes these things are generally quite interesting and also you know it's interesting going from one decade to another and another different music scene. You you probably sort of know it more than anybody that the next wave of, you know, 16, 18-year-olds or 15, 16-year-olds come along every few years. You know, there's like every three to five years there's another scene. And often bands who were very successful in one decade, I find, struggle in another. And there's a lot of artists in the 70s who... You know, you could just see they were out of step with the 80s. How did you sort of embrace that period? Because in the UK, we obviously had a kind of change of government with, you know, Thatcher coming in in 79. Then we had the Falkland War. We had the the miners' crisis. There was suddenly this kind of period of kind of new romantic kind of sounds coming up, you know, and all those bands like Gary Newman had been around and Soft Cell and then sort of Depeche Mode. How did you sort of navigate your early 80s at this stage? Well, it was it was it was interesting because I was sort of my, my theory is that early 80s, like the new wave kind of music that I was doing, the keyboard music was from I was a big I was front and center in the disco movement, too. I was a big, huge disco fan in 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 Montreal. I was uh, really into R&B and stuff like that. And I've always said that the new wave was a mixture of prog rock and disco. It was synthesizer music with a with a with a dance beat. And uh, I just, we just, you know, sort of, we, we, we didn't make too many records. We, we haven't made too many records in our career, but you know, the, 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 the few that we made in the, in the eighties were, that was, that was it. It was sort of prog rock with a dance beat is, is how I kind of, kind of considered it. We were, yes. kind of, we kind of, 
we got lost in the nineties for sure. Like every other, <laughs> every other eighties band, but, uh, and did you get, was the you know, record labels, were they quite keen at that stage? Were they sort of sensing something sort of quite exciting happening with the outfit? Yeah. Well, the, what happened was we were, uh, we, 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 the thing that helped us really take off was, uh, the 12 inch remix of safety dance we were we were actually in studio recording our second album we had we had sort of had a couple of the singles off the first record off rhythm of youth had been made the top 40 charts in canada and you know a couple of charts around the world and we were stoked we 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 were with a, an english label a little english a little british label called static records and uh they had sort of agreed to finance our second record we were and we were totally stoked we were in studio making our second album when we got the call to make a 12 inch remix for for safety dance because that was sort of supposedly the trend and uh so we did we stopped everything and did this remix sent it off and uh it hit number one on the billboard dance charts so we had to literally drop everything get in a tour bus and tour for the next two years and uh you know we didn't even have a we didn't even have an american deal then we we were so we had a lot of labels knocking on our door it was it was pretty exciting times so yes. the 12 inch and also the the advent of mtv the the the, the video video that we did when pope uh the safety dance video was a big factor in uh in the success of the band too it was uh yes everybody he... was kind of he was the man. I know he did some fantastic videos as well for The Cure, wasn't he? That was one of his kind of moments yeah. as well, wasn't it? Did you, um, I mean, the first single on the your debut album, that was the track I Like. So when that sort of no, that came was the out, second one. That was, was the that second one. Oh, the second one. Yeah, what Safety Dance, the, was, the, Safety first Dance one. was the first single, yeah. Right, it wasn't the second one. Oh, I think it just says singles came off it. So, um, yes, I like was then I got the message and living in, in China. Did you, um, I know probably a billion people have asked this, but I'm still curious. Can you remember how the safety dance came about, by the way? Can you remember the moment or where you were when you sort of um, constructed it? Oh, yeah. The origin story to the safety dance is, uh, well, it was, you know, late 70s and disco was dying out and, you um, we were club kids, so every you know we'd be hanging out in the clubs, and the club, the the DJs every now and then would slip in Blondie's Heart of Glass or Devo Satisfaction or something like that. They'd slip in a, a, a new wave song into the mix, and we'd get up and start pogo dancing, which pogo dancing was the just the precursor to the to slam dancing into the mosh pit, and uh, but nobody had ever seen it before bunch of guys just jumping up and down bouncing off each other's chest they thought we were fighting so they'd we'd get kicked out we'd get mm -hmm. told to stop or or leave and uh after having been kicked out of a few clubs for for, for pogo dancing to heart of glass i i just went home and wrote it did something about it wrote a song about it and there you go the lyrics did they all just flow like that and they just came yeah, out it just all kind of came it just all uh i just channeled the whole thing pretty much at once yeah Yes, because I remember a few years ago when I was sort of doing one of those trips around America, couldn't work out why um, flock of e seagulls was so big, weren't they, in, in America? And then someone said, well, 
when MTV started, they had no videos. And, you know, it was like, well, we've got this one from this British band. They said, oh, thank God for that. We'll just play that. And that was quite the story of quite a few of those kind of big successes, wasn't it? That um, there was, yeah. you know, people forget that MTV was very sort of desperate for sort of video. So obviously... Yeah, well, they that's can... it. They only had, there was only 10 videos out, you know, or something like that. And so we'd get like maximum rotation. You know, the, the videos that were that, that were out there were getting played a lot. So... There, and, and you know, videos was a big thing. It was a it was a new technology, and there was a, there were a lot of Friday night video shows and stuff like that. And so it was that was really the exposure. Yeah. Yes, I mean, incredible. And on the video front, it was quite an interesting one, isn't it? It has that sort of very in English folk rural tradition. Who came up with those kind of ideas and images? Oh, that was Tim. Well, the funny thing was that that we both had come up with the same idea and we it was pre-internet days so we actually wrote each other letters about what our idea for the video was and our our letters crossed the pond at the same time and so you know we we both realized that i i had come up with the same thing i wanted a kind of sort of pied piper type of peter pan kind of video and he had the same idea so that's why we got along really well he ended up doing all our videos and uh and uh, it was it was good. And I think the fact that everybody it's kind of a timeless video. I mean, it still plays here in North America all the time. And because it's it's the type of video you can't really I mean, if you turn the sound off, you can't really tell when it was when it was made. It's kind of like a Western, you know, it's like everybody was expecting spiked hair and zippered clothes and pointy shoes. And they got a, this medieval thing and it's it's timeless. So it it, it has a long, long life. Yes, absolutely. It was interesting because in this area, there used to be a lot of fairs and festivals and um, they had often used to have a medieval theme, which I found quite interesting. The Albion and Barsham fairs, they were quite famous at the time. How did you find touring, you know, with the band? Because obviously no band who gets success ever has any real, you know, they have fantasies and dreams. But the reality is like once that rocket takes off, there is very little that one can do apart from hold on for dear life. So how did you find that kind of exposure and experience? It was great. I mean, I love touring. I'm still, we're still on the road. We just, we're just, we still, I put the band back together about oh, just over 10 years ago. And, uh, and we've been touring since then. I've actually done more, more shows this time out than last, than, than the first time around. I've been to more places globally than, than the than the first time out. So it was, I think the, 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 the biggest thing was, was being recognized everywhere and that was due to MTV and that sort of my my face was everywhere and everybody kind of knew what I looked like. So I think that was the biggest, hardest thing to get to get used to. But uh, the rest, I mean, that's why we do it, you know, kind of thing. Yes, absolutely. What was it like sort of trying to sort of gather yourself for the, the second album? What was that sort of process like? Because often, you know, it's the classic cliche, isn't it? The second album problem or sometimes the third. Because I sort of find with the 80s, especially, there was a sort of a bit of a narrative of in this country, um, the, you know, getting a sick, you know, have the 12 month honeymoon period, you know, John Peel would give it a play get a John Peel session, then that first album, then the second album thing. But how did you, you know, and then sort of life becomes a bit tricky within the band and stuff like that. So what was your sort of feeling of the second album and coming together? Oh, it was, I could write a book about it because it was, uh, it was, uh, like I told you before, it was, we had to, when Safety Dance hit, we were halfway through the second album. We were in studio 
working on it. And so when the whole thing died, when the whole safety dance thing was over, we had to go back and the record label just said, well, just finish. You know, we had new song, we had all kinds of things, but the record label was adamant about us just finishing what we had started because they wanted to, obviously to, to, to cut costs and everything like that. So we ended up, you know, having to finish an album that we had started two years previously before we, everything had happened. And uh, so it didn't end well, let's put it that way. And we, uh, we ended up changing labels and everything like that after this, the second record didn't do as well as the first, obviously. And we, we were dropped by our label, the band changed, uh, everything changed. And I, I sort of, sat down and wrote Pop Goes the World after that. That's when Pop Goes the World happened. Yes, and you had Ian Anderson appear as well on one of the tracks. We did, yes. Which a huge, huge Jethro Tull fan. And he loves, you know, stand up and benefit and minstrel in the gallery. So was that, what? whose idea was to get Ian in? That was uh, our A&R guy uh, who signed us to, uh, to Polygram in the States was Derek Shulman, who used to be the lead singer for Gentle Giant, which was a band that I grew up listening to also. Yes. And uh, he was, he, Gentle Giant used to open up for Jethro Tull all, you know, in the 70s and whatever. And uh, he's the one who suggested it, said he he knew Ian quite well and he would have Ian come in and do the tracks. So we said, we should, sure, we'd love it. Yes, and I know with uh, Gentle Giant, there was a particular member of the band who sadly passed away recently, but was a producer that did a lot of stuff in the sort of the 80s and 90s. Everyone talks about him very fondly, but his name slightly passes me by. You might remember his. It was one of the brothers. It was Ray Shulman, yeah. Oh, that's the one, yes. They really liked it because often his wife would pop in and say, oh, this sounds very nice. And they go, oh, this is good. Ray's wife likes it. This must be a good track. So, um, yes, they, they, all, they, everyone loves Ray, you know, and uh, that's yeah, quite nice. Yeah, that was the, the thing about uh, Derek was that uh, Men Without Hats had three brothers in it, at, you know, sort of their, at their height of their popularity. It was myself and my two brothers. And Gentle Giant was also a three-brother sort of combination too they had there was three brothers and the, the shulman brothers in in gentle giant but i think the main thing out of that was the when i did the demo for pop goes the world the song pop goes the world was just it was at the at the beginning it was a it was an instrumental it was the last thing last i had written like 10 or 12 songs and pop goes the world was a little instrumental that i had just just composed and it was supposed to be like a sort of a like a just a little tell star or popcorn type of type of song just a one minute long mental uh and so i sent that off on the demo to to derek and derek phoned me back and said okay well those what you're going to do is those 10 songs that you wrote you're going to throw them away and that little one minute long instrumental you're going to make a real song out of it and then you're going to write 10 more just like that one. And uh, I was at a point in my life I could have said, you know, no way. or But I decided to follow his advice. And it was like some of the best advice I ever got because it was uh, Pop Goes the World did almost almost as well as Safety Dance and still is for me. So it's good. Yes, it does. It still sounds amazing. I mean, what was also quite interesting and, you know, stating the obvious here, but, you know, sort of as the 80s progressed, you know, a lot of the bands that I probably loved at that point were starting to call it a day. And it was 
you know, it was kind of interesting because then the ecstasy kind of period comes in. As, as I mentioned, you know, another wave of younger people start to want to get to gigs and find, discover their bands. And with that ecstasy, you know, there was a dance scene again and, and sort of all those bands like the Happy Mondays and Primal Scream, Stone Roses, Chicago House Music started to appear. What was that kind of impact on, you know, with you at that stage realising that there's another wave of kind of interest in music that's happening that, you know, you, you're sort of vaguely absorbing or vaguely aware of? Yeah, well, I kind of got into, I was, I you know, I was sort of into that also, but I was kind of more into the Seattle grunge scene. I was sort of following that pretty closely. And that's why the last Men Without Hats record, uh, you know, of the 80s and early 90s was Sideways. And it was a, a guitar record. There was no keyboards on it at all. And uh, we we had a contractual obligation with, with, with Polygram. We had one record left on our contract. And so I told them, that uh, if they let us make, you know, I, I would do the record for half the budget that was promised on the contract if they would let us do a guitar record. And uh, they, they agreed, obviously. And so uh, the last the last Hats record of that of that uh, century was uh, was an all guitar record It was kind of a Seattle Seattle record. Yes, I do remember sort of going to see. Tad and the support band was Nirvana at the, um, yes, when they did their tour around the UK, which was rather sweet of them. I got a chance to interview them as well, which was quite sweet. So, um, yes, because John Peel played, there was a particular compilation called Seattle 100, which I just remember being very struck by and impressed by. So, um, yes, it did. It did. And there was also those bands on 4AD records like the Pixies and Throne Muses that came along as well. And yeah. And such bands, and yeah, then 4AD had people like Dead Can Dance. So as the 90s progressed, what was the the kind of chronological order of the next one? Was that the adventures of women and men? That was the, no, that was the one before Sideways. That one that one came right after uh, Pop Goes the World. But there again, we had we were changing labels, and there's another book to be written about that period too. You know, the 90s <laughs> for me were uh, were just I took the 90s off basically and um i uh we i made a solo record in 96 i think it was which was kind of a kind of a dance kind of oriented kind of ravish kind of record but uh it was only distributed in canada didn't i could, didn't get a, a major deal with that one so yes that but actually i was listening to that earlier today the spell wasn't it that the spell, you did yeah and yeah. that sounds fantastic. That's yeah. got such a nice vibe. Have you got fond memories of the spell? Very much, very much. Made that record with uh, John Punter, producer, produced that record. And uh, he had produced a lot of my favorite records, like a lot of, well, he did some Brian Ferry solo records and uh, and uh, just that he, he worked on a lot of records that I grew up with. So uh, yes, it was very interesting working with him. He was a... Uh, encyclopedia of of music history and just and studio knowledge so it was it was a great learning experience and uh, just a real fun record to make yeah there's some amazing songs i love the one open your eyes and um super bad girls it's just yeah. a, it's a classic it's a really so that one was just one a, a one for the fans so to speak kind of yeah we we uh I made it with a small label in Montreal and they, they didn't have, they didn't have too much clout. So we couldn't get it. We couldn't get it uh, distributed in the States or anything like that. So it kind of, 
stayed where it was. There you go. And then and then sort of as the, the next decade appears, when's your next musical moment? Is it No Hats Beyond This Point? Was that your... Yeah, that that, that was basically a demo that got released. I'm not... Uh, I don't really consider that a real... A real Men Without Hats record. It was just sort of a, a a demo that wasn't supposed to see the light of day that that got released. But um, no, that, during that period, I was a stay-at-home dad. I I, I had a son, and uh, well, my 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 ex-wife and I had a son, and uh, I was I, I stayed home raising my son for the next ten years. Yes. Did you have to um, process, as as a lot of people do, this sort of the weird world that was being in a band and having that success? Or were you able to sort of walk away from it quite easily? Or was it just a lot of kind of stuff to deal with? No, I walked away, I walked away pretty easy. I was having fun being a, being a, being a dad and everything like that. And, uh, you know, getting to do a lot of the things that I hadn't had a chance to do while I was in the band, you know, so it was it was kind of interesting. It was it was very interesting, actually. It was I loved being a I loved being a, a dad to my son, and uh, and uh, yeah, it was. So I took the next ten years off, and uh, and then the '80s started to make a comeback, and uh, I just got the call to to go on in one of these '80s sort of rewind tours, and uh, I've been on the road ever since. So it's uh, started making records again. It was it's been a very enjoyable experience, actually. Well, yeah, absolutely. So that was kind of 2010, and then. What was it like sort of writing new material for the band? Was that quite, were you, did you have lots of ideas when you were still sort of doing your John Lennon period of sort of? No, you know, no, I didn't. I wasn't, I was completely removed from music. I I, I tend to watershed. And, uh, and uh, so when it was time, like the record, just every record I've ever written has come to me, the whole thing in about a week. And then I, I just, I don't really, do anything until the next sort of moment of inspiration comes. That's just, that's just the way I work. A lot of different people have different, you know, work processes and uh, that's just how it works. I just uh, got back on the road. It excited me. It was exciting to be in a band. It was exciting to be on the road again. And, and then just one day I just sat down and pumped out 12 songs and we called it love is love in the age of war. And that was it. And, and then the next series of records came because the fans were asking for for new music. So the next record was kind of different. The Men Without Hats again, parts one and two that we released a couple of years ago were were more uh, fan driven, and uh, they were they we went back to the vault and got old demos and finished them off, old demos from the eighties and nineties, and finished them off. And that was that was a different process too. And did covers. We did the part one is an album, uh, an EP of cover tunes of songs that I grew up with in the 70s, like Lou Reed and Mott the Hoople and Rolling Stones and bands like that. And uh, and then the part two is original songs. But like I say, it's songs that we, we wrote some in studio while we were making it and some, a lot of them were from the vault for were songs that were had been written and half finished back in the 80s and 90s. Yes, God, you have been very prolific, actually. A friend of mine is really obsessed with one of the songs. I think it's called Moonbeam. Can you remember putting, this yeah. was kind of one of your 80s one. Can you remember the story behind that one coming together? Oh, that was just, uh, that was, um, uh, that was the second single of uh, of Pop Goes the World. And 
you know, it was just one of those pop songs, you know, it was, it was, I, I wrote it knowing, knowing it was going to be a single and just put a lot of, put a lot of work into making it poppy and dancey. And uh, we, we still play it live too. It's a, it's a crowd favorite too. So it's, uh, it's still going there. Yes. And with your current, because, because you bought an album out sort of two years ago, didn't you? Which was. Yeah, that was the Again series. Yeah. That was that. And your current lineup, do you feel with this particular one that, um, Yes, the the energy and the vibe of the band is as good as ever. Oh yeah, no, it's great. The the it's we're we're a four piece. We have uh, drums, guitar, myself, and a keyboard player. And the keyboard player is my brother Colin, who was an original member back in the eighties. Joined the band for a while, and then now his uh, his daughter, my niece Sahara, has taken his place. So she's it's a it's a totally new vibe now. It's great. She brings a whole next generation vibe to it. And uh, the two others, the drummer and the guitarist, have been in the band now for like ten years. So it's 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 uh, it's it's quite interesting because the band has been through a lot of members over the years. But this is one of the most solid incarnations that we've had up until now. So it's 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 good. It's fun. Have you found because because that's one thing I've sort of noticed that often there's a a period of time that needs to sort of kind of pass and then one starts to get more appreciation later and I've almost put it down to 25 to 30 years with a lot of the bands you know from that 80s period did you have a a similar feeling of like one minute not no one being interested couldn't get arrested and then suddenly this kind of trickle and then the wave and a god people really love us and they've discovered other parts of our band which no one else had even bothered about and people appreciate you more have you had that kind of experience as well you mentioned yeah. was it 2010 with rewind but even you know like 2024 just wondered if the, the sort of the band has become even more popular oh it's great it's great like we do shows now and and the, the really cool thing about playing live now is that our original fans come out and uh they're you know in their 50s and 60s or whatever and they bring their kids a lot of times as they're the the next generation is there with them and sometimes their grandkids but uh there's a cross-generational thing that's happened with this band we've sort of a couple of the songs have been well especially safety dance has embedded itself into pop culture here in north america and it's been on you know the simpsons and Family Guy and Futurama and like a whole lot of those adult comic TV shows, cartoon shows. And uh, there was one show in particular, a show called Glee here in, in North oh, America. Oh, yes, yes. And that sort of that sort of brought brought the band to a whole new audience. It really sort of, you know, and I mean, it, it goes in like... Pop music now is is really '80s influenced too, so that's really helped us out too. Every time you turn on the radio, you hear you hear those big '80s drum sounds, you hear synthesizers and robot voices and all the stuff that that made the '80s sound the way it did, and it's sort of come back full circle. And uh, so people are really into that now. People are really into this sort of techno kind of dance music that's in pop music, and so it's. Uh, it's it's uh it's helped us out we've uh, we've managed to cross generations i mean getting into super bowl ads too like that doesn't hurt and no absolutely i think it had the same Im- impact with people like chumbawamba i know they they'd spent a lot of time together before they had their big hit but again you know when they had that hit it just 
for some reason, have you ever sort of had that sort of sat down and wondered what it is that creates a perfect song that becomes kind of timeless? Well, one of my one of the guys who what the the fellow who produced uh, Love in the Age of War, he says the hit the 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 trick to having a hit single is having a hit single, you know. So that's like number one. I mean, but I think what's the thing with with Men Without Hats with the safety dance? It was, I think it was the message. You know, it was the the sort of the you can dance if you want to. I think everybody kind of it it struck a chord with with a lot of people. There's no there was no real and because the video had this medieval thing, there was no kind of look to the band. There was no there was no real safety dance except for the yes arm movement. So everybody could pretty much do it. And uh, it wasn't like a break dance or, you know, like a tango or anything like that. So it was pretty easy to do. And so we've kind of, uh, we appealed to everybody across the board. We have heavy metal fans. We have punk fans. We have disco fans. We have all fans from all kinds of musical likes that kind of, it. and the message kind of touched that chord with everybody that you can dance if you want to. It was sort of a sort of an anti-peer pressure kind of message and march to your own drummer kind of message. And I think it still resonates today too with the, you know, especially with, with, with social media, you know, being so powerful, so strong in people's lives that, you know, that the sort of do your own thing message resonates with people still. And one thing, same thing with pop goes the world. The message back then was if we don't stop destroying mother earth or you know abusing mother earth she's going to blow up that was the message that i was taking to people back in those days it was the nascent uh green movement was just starting or you know whatever and uh, it's still going on these are questions that are still being asked today too so people are still concerned about stuff like that today too so i think th those you know th i think it was mostly the message in the, in the songs are are what's given it a bit of longe you know, longevity too. Yes, it's, it's kind of a fascinating kind of thought. And I've often spoke to, you know, the artists who've had some, you know, these amazing songs and then they've gone away and sort of kind of melted their brains trying to work out what it is and trying to write that next one that, yeah, and then sort of realise and perhaps it's like the stars lining up, you know, it's just going to happen if that it does, too, brilliant. Like, <laughs> some people just believe that the songs are out there and you just, we're just conduits, you know, we're just, we're just channeling these messages that we were meant to channel. And Yes, so because one, one band you mentioned, Led Zeppelin, who um, you went to see, which was a cool first band, and I remember sort of growing up, it was kind of quite, a, I suppose, a lot of heavy metal kids, you know, Deep Purple, Black Sabbath, um, Motorhead, but the one band that you know, you had to be very careful not to say anything about because music in in the eighties and seventies was quite tribal. Was was status quo. The quo fans were really like you know you couldn't mess with the quo fans. But obviously they um, they did a cover, didn't they? Did you find yourself like going, wow, check out the quo? This is bizarre. Yeah, no, that's that's uh, it's one of the ones I'm I'm the most proud of is the status quo record, the status quo cover, and that one in the uh, Weird Al Yankovic cover uh of safety dance are my kind of probably my two favorite yes and did you i remember robert plant sort of talking about his kind of life in music and then sort of when john bonham had died and then sort of the band broke up he sort of said kind of in quite a sort of serious way you know that was the loss of innocence at that point in his life and then he had to sort of find the next bit did you have kind of moments like that as well 
being an artist, being pulled in all directions while trying to be a creative soul. Did you sort of feel moments where you thought, God, I'm just not that innocent person anymore? Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, you know, especially when you have like what happened with us, like having a, you know, a hit right out, right out of the box, you know, the first single being, being this massive hit. We had the problem of everybody wanting after that, wanting safety dance part two, son of safety dance, return of safety dance beneath the planet of the safety dance. They, you know, people just kept asking for safety dance and we were sort of trying to, trying to do something else, you know, trying to, trying to expand our horizons. And we kept getting pulled back into the, into the realm of safety dance. So, but I mean, now it's a different story. Now I feel like the song is so much, it's, I feel sometimes it's bigger than the band, you know, it's, 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 so many people know, I mean, a lot, a lot of people don't even know the title of the song. It's that You Can Dance song. And the, the, the next level is a lot of people don't know who the band is. And so sometimes I feel like a some kind of museum curator going around the world presenting this musical artifact that, you know, brings people immense joy. And uh, and that's great, too. Yes, well, absolutely. And you've got an amazing tour lined up for the next couple of months haven't you starting in March and going right through into the summer so obviously life on the road you do enjoy it no I do I do I I really uh I enjoy being on stage it's just something I really I just some people some people it's not for everybody but um I I'm one of those people that just I love being on stage so I love being on the road and do you have to prep very much for it sort of Going to the gym, going for long runs, doing yoga or anything like that, all sort of. Oh, I keep I keep in shape pretty much. Yeah, I don't. I've 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 sort of changed my lifestyle around pretty pretty dramatically since the, since the eighties. So uh, I'm uh, I'm I'm keeping in shape, and uh, so I'm ready. Yes, and I, and do you keep yourself? kind of culturally and musical or artistic do you keep sort of curious what's happening in music now do you sort of look at you know who's who's kind of what's happening in the world of people like Ed Sheeran or Taylor Swift or Billie Eilish or any of these people do they kind of come onto your not really I, I sort of peripherally I I sort of you know I hear things that you know Taylor Swift is going out with a guy who was in the Super Bowl and stuff like that but I don't really I I couldn't hum you a Taylor Swift song or even give you a title of one. And, uh, and I don't really, there's, there's too many bands out there. I'm, I, I'm sort of a crate digger. I'm a, I, I, I enjoy uh, digitally crate digging on the internet and going back and discovering bands that I missed first time around in the seventies and, uh, and, or just, just listening to bands that I grew up with and stuff like that, but mo- yes. mostly finding new bands that I haven't, that I missed the first time around. And it's, it really amazes me that makes me realize how lucky I am that people are still listening to my music because there's so many bands out there that, you know, like when you're in this business and you realize like how many people put their heart and soul and their lives and their bank account and their mortgages and their families and put everything into this, into, into this craft. And, you know, like one out of 10,000 actually get heard, you know, and, and the, the rest just, go by the wayside and never get heard and and it's it's it makes me realize how how lucky I am well absolutely I think it's kind of interesting and I I don't mean to sound like I've got some 
weird rose-tinted nostalgia. But I think a lot of the bands, and, you know, I'm a bit amazed how many bands there were in the 80s because I was an 80s indie kid. But I missed a huge, huge amount, you know. And um, But I think back then, during that time, a lot of people... There was the unemployment benefit system that we had in, you know, this country, especially the UK, as well as so we had things like unemployment benefit and job seekers allowance and enterprise land schemes. And I think when you're 16, 18, being still able to live, but even on a very meager amount is enough if you've got something like a passion like music. And I think that's why there were so many bands during that period, because that kind of could keep people together for five years doing, you know, like like I said, you know, get the Absolutely, sort of single, yeah. get the album, get your little transit van, go around the country, you know, play these dates. And you don't mind. But after five years of, yes, possibly sort of thinking we're still quite broke and actually we've started to find each other quite irritating. You know, that's often when the, when the scene finishes really for a lot of people. But it's been a good ride, hasn't it? That's the main yeah. thing. It's fun. It's been a lot of fun too. And it's a lost art. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, it's almost, you know, it's almost a dead art being in it, being in a band. I don't, uh, there's definitely, I mean, I just see from around me, I just don't see that many new bands happening these days. You know, it's not like it used to be that where everybody was in a band because like you say, it was easier to, to get a flat, to get, you know, have a part-time job. And, and I mean, I was, like I said, out at the beginning, I was, I was going to university, I had a part-time job and I still had like a lot of time and, you know, the resources to 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 be in a band and buy equipment and pay for a rehearsal space and and go out on the road and make no money. You know, I, I you, you could still do it back in the 80s and even in the, the 90s a bit, but it's harder for now. Like people, the cost of living is a lot, a lot steeper and and kids know a lot because of the internet kids know a lot about what it is to be in a band now and it's it's more of a career choice now like it's like they they a lot of people don't want to go into it because they know it's it's what the dream is is like they used to say gold on the wall and nothing in the bank you know so it's uh yes this is so this that. is all true i think the main thing is that you you know when you've got those years and you can almost have up to 25 with possibly 30 and think, well, there's got nothing particularly to show for it, which isn't true because often people have got, you know, a body of work, they've had that experience. But the other key thing is there's there's often no debt. You know, they've almost come out and went, I've got no money. But the good thing is you haven't got any, like, huge debt. So even though that probably doesn't feel great at the time, thinking I've spent 10 years doing this job, but I haven't actually got anything to show, at least you're not in minus money. So university back in those days didn't sort of cost a fortune to do so exactly, you, could, exactly. you, you could experiment and just kind of interesting kind of because with the 80s i suppose were did film and and literature did that sort of impact into your life at all were you interested in certain films during that period because i know cinema was such a big thing for us yeah, back like in those... I was actually when I, I like I said I did my I, I did my first year of law in the south of France, but when I came back to Canada, I went to McGill University and I I, I enrolled in the film and communications program, and that's where I met all the all the musicians that I formed the first incarnation of Men Without Hats with, and so, but we were I was more into like experimental stuff like Stan Brackage and that that type of experimental stuff but i've always been into movies i mean that's my main enjoyment still today is is watching movies and, uh, yes because i know that period we we were very big on david lynch 
a raise ahead. And then there was sort of Betty Blue, Diva, Rosalind and the Lions, Baghdad Cafe. I just wondered if Wings of Desire, I just wondered if you'd also become kind of interested or sort of influenced by sort of such films or just enjoyed them. Oh, yeah, I definitely enjoyed them. I was I definitely paid a lot of attention to it, yeah. Yes, and literature, books. Were there any particular authors or books that you were um, inspired by or would would often return to for inspiration or just... Yeah, I was a big science fiction fan growing up. My, I inherited that from my dad. And uh, so it was... Uh, I, I started off reading, like, you know, the, the sort of classic Isaac Asimov and Robert Heinlein, Robert Silverberg books. and But then I got into more of the sort of Philip Dick, Philip K. Dick. Oh, yes. Christopher Priest, The Inverted World, and that type of things. And and uh, it, it, but I've sort of, I've moved on. I've moved on. I don't, I don't read very much anymore. I, I don't, uh, I guess my last stop in literature was poetry. I, I, I read a lot of poetry too, and sort of helped me with my lyrics and stuff. But uh, yes. Do you use any different techniques for your sort of lyric writing? I know, obviously, people like Bowie were quite sort of open about their William Burroughs cut-ups and bringing in a lot of sort of interest in, uh, I suppose, abstract kind of uh, realism to to his work and using different sort of techniques. I just wondered if you changed your way of writing from your early years to your latter years. No, not really. I think one of the things that, that one of the bigger influences on on myself personally is that growing up in montreal i grew up in french it's a it's a french sort of dominated society in 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 montreal and quebec so i went to school i did all my schooling in french and i found that that really helped me with just imagery i would sort of translate french images in english and stuff like that was kind of interesting and and uh, it just gave me a different sort of perspective on on the English language coming from a French background. Yes. So that, that kind of me. Yeah, that's quite interesting. I did sort of come to um, Montreal one, was it February or March time? God, it was so cold, actually. I nearly died. I didn't yeah, have to I don't live there anymore. I couldn't, I couldn't <laughs> handle winter. I live on the West Coast now and... Uh, I've been here for twenty years, and I could uh, imagine the the climate must be a lot easier on the on the joints and the oh, sort yeah. of oh. and the hip. Do you sort of enjoy? Because I love that part of America towards the deserts of New Mexico and Arizona. Do you ever spend time doing road trips around America, sort of those pits? Well, or well, we're on the road. Like that's where that's our main touring area, you know. So I'm out every year. I'm out doing a couple of months in all all around all around you know, America and North America. So, and I live on Vancouver Island, which is one of the most beautiful places in North America too. So it's like, I'm blessed as far as nature and that type of thing is concerned. And I'm, I'm very happy here. God, as long as you can see the Milky Way, it gives you a perspective in life, can't it really? That's the main yeah. thing. And do you, I mean, you've got this amazing tour coming up, so obviously everyone's getting match fit. Do you have any recordings that you've got planned or back in the studio yeah well i'm going into studio in a, in about a month actually just before we go on tour we're going into studio to to record our uh, a new single that we've got and uh we're also going to be re- for the tour we're putting out we're putting out a live record for the tour we've got 
are the exact set that we're going to be doing on tour. We, we're going to be recording it live and uh, and putting out a putting putting it out on vinyl and selling the vinyl on on the road. So, God, we love we love good merchandising, don't we? This is what yeah. it's it is. Did you um? I was going to say about merchandising. Oh yes, what what particular things do fans go for with the, when when they sort of come to see the band live? You, as far as merchandising is yes. concerned, yes. What, what's the what's the you know, the main the main thing? Because oh, obviously, well, they just the, the, our T-shirts sell very well. That that logo has been very good to us. The the band logo has been uh, been, been been very good to us. And anything with a logo on it will will uh, attract attention. But uh, so we uh, we uh, we a lot of fans buy T-shirts. It's it's great. Yes. Where did that? I where did the image come from with the the silhouette of the face and the the line across it? Yeah, that's just something I put together. It was it was the period. It, there was kind of a trend of a no sign. There was like no bull, no bozos with a clown in it, and uh, no bullshit, and no no this, no that, and uh, so we just came up with that. We just came up with the the no men without hats sign. That was uh, just and part sort of that of, trend. And with with sort of managing the band now, is that a lot neater than it was in the eighties? Sort of on the tour and on the publishing and on the ownership of music. Is that something that you've got a handle on? And it's like a lot, lot easier to sort of navigate, knowing that you can. Oh yeah, it. everything's everything's a lot easier now. Like having gone through it, you know, once before and sort of learned from your mistakes is my only advice, as Brian Ferry would say. And uh, it's. Uh, it's 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 you know everything's even the touring is easier now too because is it back then I would liken being in a band and in a young band on the road is kind of like being on a sports team, on being on a hockey team you know you travel around and and you're sort of competing against other bands for the there's there's only that many clubs to play there's only that many spots on the top forty there's only that many journalists to talk to there's only that much room in in the magazines. So there's a lot of competition going on when you're a young band, you know, trying to make it. But at this point, we don't have anything to prove anymore. We've done our work. We're out there because because we we want to be. We're not we're not out there to 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 try and and make it or anything like that. We're just out there because because the fans want us to be out there. We wouldn't be out there if the fans weren't asking for it. And the, I'm on the road with a lot, all the bands that we're on the road with. It's it's like one big happy '80s family. It's there's no there's no competition anymore. Whereas back in the days, I must admit there was there was a lot of uh, competition between bands and stuff. Yes, now it's just, everybody the, just gets along. The argy bargy. Which band were you particularly? Um, have you sort of particularly become fond of that you thought, God, these guys or women are just so nice. I was, I was amazed. I always thought they might have been difficult, but actually, they're the nicest people ever. Was I tell you, the... everybody, everybody. Like you know, we tour a lot. It's funny you should have mentioned them before, but like Flock of Seagulls, we do a lot of tours with Flock of Seagulls, and uh, but every band like we've been on the road with, it's been great because there's a lot of bands that I sort of that I sort of got into being in, a, in a, I got into a band because I was, you know, listening to the human league and the B-52s and, and, and that was our first tour that we made when we, we did, when we got back, put the band back together, 2011 uh, was going across North America with human league and the B-52s. And, uh, but everybody's been, like I say, everybody's been great. There's not a single person that, that sort of has disappointed me so far. There's everybody's been, 
it's yes. fabulous. I think this is one of the nice things of age, isn't it, really? Is there any, because I know, but I know your band's a bit different because you've had this massive hit, but I know with a lot of bands who haven't quite had this massive hit, you know, often get one country that they're particularly fond of. I know one, one band a bit confused because the Philippines love them or someone's big in Germany or Italy or you know, Japan, is there any particular country that to have really obsessed with, you know, your band? And, and when you go there, you, you're treated like royalty. Well, we went south of South Africa was, was, was a band, strangely enough, where it was a, a country that, that the safety dance was probably number one for the longest period of time. And uh, so we went and headlined a festival down there recently and uh well not recently about five years ago and and uh and it was great we were we were treated royally i mean it was it was somewhere i really didn't expect i didn't even i wasn't even aware that we were that popular there and uh yes did you ever I, see that that amazing film called searching for sugar man this guy who was yeah. It's, it's kind of yeah, brings the tears to your eye, doesn't it? It's so beautifully yeah, it done. Does, it does. So, um, oh, so there you go. I guess it's an anthem. It's a bit like Chumbawamba, isn't it? It's got that quality that just has has simple lyrics, but somehow there's a resonate. You know, it resonates on quite a deep level, and um, people just adore it. Actually, I mean, I suppose you're probably fond of all your music, though, aren't you? There isn't probably an album that you're not happy with. Oh, there's a couple I'm less fond of than others, but but uh, in in general, I'm pretty happy with everything. Yeah. Did um just on that recording level, did the producer? Did you always have good producers? At, you know, during those recording sessions, did you always feel quite pleased in the studio? Well, it, at the beginning, it was it was it was you know, we sort of self-produced at the beginning and sort of ended up working with better producers as we went along. So. Uh, I wish it would have been the other way around. I wish we would have worked with big producers at the beginning and learned a lot of stuff. Then we could have produced it by ourselves. But we, you know, we we learned by by making mistakes and 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 trying not to repeat them. So uh, that's the way yes. it goes. It's always good to make mistakes. It's just repeating them is never good. I mean, if you could have whispered something to your like sixteen year old self starting out in this interesting world, even if that sixteen year old self ignored you, is there any bit of advice or sort of push in a direction that you would have had um generally oh just probably not to take myself so seriously that remember that it's only rock and roll and to have more fun with it i was i was quite serious back then and i think it sort of it influenced what i was doing and uh and sort of made things a lot harder. I think, I think there's one thing that Derek Shulman always told me, just always remember at the end of the day, it's, it's only rock and roll and uh, we're here, we're here to have fun. Yes. It's so much easier when you get older, not to take yourself too seriously, but when you're young, you know, especially the eighties, it was, we were all so uptight sometimes, I think, you know, there you go. But look, thank you ever so much. And sorry about that beginning. That was, um, oh, no problem. No problem. But, um, look, I hope you have a lovely day. And, um, is the weather nice with you there? It's raining today, but it's, it's warm. So it's, uh, you can't complain. Yes. Well, look, thank you again. And, um, I'll keep in touch with your, um, is he manager or? Yeah. Corey. Yeah. Corey, I will, I'll thank him for this because this is amazing. But yeah, this has been amazing. Thank you and take care and have a great tour. Thank you. Thanks nice a lot. To you. Cheers. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.
And that, dear listener, as you can guess, gather, etc., is the end of the interview. A massive thank you for that time. That's Ivan from the band Men Without Hats. Um, and as I said, probably at the beginning, I'll give you the link to their website in the notes below. This has been the C86 Show. David Eastall, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. All these um, programmes have been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Have a great week. Stay safe.